this morning and turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, we are looking at the seven churches that the Lord Jesus Christ speaks to. And of course, these churches are relevant for us today because he speaks to the church the same way today. So what's happening in that church could be happening in any church at any one time. And we see what the Lord actually approves us and what he disapproves us in the church. So this morning we're going to be looking at verse 18 uh, through verse number 29. So let's look at that in our Bibles. Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. And it says this. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, his feet are like burnished bronze, says this, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance, and your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. And she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent for her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds, of her deeds. And I will kill her children with, with pestilence and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He, he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, as we come and approach your word, hum, Lord, let us come humbly before the word of God. And I pray, Lord, that you would let it by your Spirit speak to all of us in some way, I pray, Lord, that you would also give us instruction as to how we are to conduct our lives, how we are to examine ourselves in our church body, and, Lord, how we are to even examine what's going on in the culture and what's pressing upon the church. Lord, I pray today that you would help us to always be hedging against compromising the truth, looking the other way when other people sin. I pray that we'd not do that. But, Lord, help us to be sensitive to our own situation, our own sins, so we can confess them on a regular basis, knowing that for those who are believers, you're faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. But, Lord, today open thy word to us and speak it to our heart. In Christ I pray. Amen. So as Jesus Christ is now in the middle of the churches evaluating them, he always gives accurate judgment 
as to the state of the church. In chapter 1, verse number 20, it says, As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So Jesus is the head and sovereign over all his church. And as the head, he walks among the lampstands, which are the churches, and then he holds the seven stars, that's the messengers of the churches, the leaders, the pastors, the elders of the churches, within his right hand. So the lampstand represents a church, and so here uh, is revelation from God concerning the church, and he says the church is like a lampstand, and a lampstand holds the light. So the church holds the light and shares the light of the gospel in the area, in the geographical area that it is in, that God has placed it in. So the one great mission of the church is definitely to share the light of the gospel. And of course, if you don't share the light, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 5, it says that the Lord is going to come and he's going to remove the church. He's going to remove the lampstand out of its place unless they repent of the sin that he is identifying for them. So Jesus gives a message to each church. The first message to the Ephesian church was that of declining love because it was a church of loveless orthodoxy. Secondly, he warns the church at Pergamum allowing because they were allowing truth to slip by tolerating doctrine that came that was influenced that came into the church from the outside from the culture and they were a church of indiscriminate tolerance now some of the churches were influenced by their cultures resulting in being indifferent to holding tightly to the truth and declining in their relationship to Christ The current message of false teachers became, the false teachers became louder and more persistent than the word of the Lord himself. And often the result when that happens is a downward spiral that those following false teachers end up playing with sin they would never think of playing with before. And in this case, it was some form of immorality. In other words, the standard of spiritual integrity and purity got downplayed in the church. So this third warning to the church at Thyatira was a church that was compromising with sin sin within the church. Thyatira was a church that became corrupt from within there was a sickness in the church which could only be cured by a by that of a true repentance a real identification of the sin and a genuine forsaking of that particular sin and then of course a purposeful putting on of purity don't forget that these were real churches that had real people who faced real problems and real spiritual opposition, just like we do today. So this is very relevant to us in our life. In fact, 
Steve Green, uh, he's the singer, used to tour with a group called, well, the Gaithers, Bill and Gloria Gaither. And when Steve Green toured with them, he got to know the crews that set up the large auditoriums that they were they had their concerts in. And uh, the riggers would be people who walked on these four-inch rafter beams, often 100 feet off the floor, uh, concrete floor, and they would hang all the speakers and, and the spotlights and all the equipment that needed to go up there, and they were paid very well for the job. The fellows used to say that they weren't bothered uh, by the sight of looking down 100 feet. Uh, what they didn't like, they said, is that where they were doing buildings where they had a false ceiling, an acoustical ceiling that slung just a couple of feet below the rafters. So they couldn't look down. They were looking at this false ceiling. And they said what happened is that it tricked them. It kind of lulled them into a carelessness when they saw a false bottom. And because of that, they said we were more scared when there's things right underneath us that we know if we fall on them, we just fall right through it, right to the ground, probably to our death. Satan's business is not so much scaring us to death as pursuing us that the danger of a spiritual fall is minimal in your life. The danger of a spiritual fall is not minimal. See, that's why the Bible tells us that we are to resist him and stand firm in the faith. So this sin that was coming up in the church was no light sin. It was a sin that was ultimately going to lure them into carelessness. It's going to lure them into kind of trusting in a false foundation and then moving them away from their relationship with the Lord and their trust in the Word of God. So this church was a compromising church. Thyatira was some 40 miles southeast of Pergamum. It was a called a Lydian city on the edge of Mycia, of course, this is in the area of Asia Minor, today modern Turkey. They didn't really have emperor worship there, so that wasn't a problem. Thyatira really was a center of trade and known as a trade, the trade center of the world. And for its cloth-dyeing industry, the people manufactured purple-dyed cloth that came from a, the mattered root and a shellfish called morax. It was extremely expensive and extremely desired by people. Uh, actually, in Acts chapter 16, verse 14, it says one of them was Lydia, the woman Lydia, from Thyatira, a merchant of expensive purple cloth. And it tells us about her that she worshiped God and as she listened to the apostle preach the message, God opened her heart 
And she accepted what Paul was saying and became a real believer. And some believe that it was her home that this church started in because she was wealthy, because she produced and maybe owned the business that produced this purple cloth. Now, it was the smallest of the seven cities, but it was the largest message that was given to the church. Because of his position in a valley, it was rich um, agriculturally, but lacked the necessary features to protect itself from invasion. So it often was a right away of to be overrun by armies. It had a healthy commerce, which in turn produced a multitude of what they called workers' guilds. Guilds. Examples included linen workers, wool workers, dyers, leather workers, people who made outer garments, potters, of course, bakers, and bronze smiths. Instead of these guild members were expected to attend guild festivals. In those festivals, they were to eat the food that had been offered to one of the gods and to, part- to ultimately participate in grossly immoral activities that would follow these feasts. These trade guilds were something like our unions today. These uh, trade guilds had a had each one, each, each of the guild had their own god. And so the members of the guild, whatever guild you were in, would be pressured into participating in the pagan feasts, often accompanied by immoral practices. So that meant Christians faced a real problem, that if they could not buy or sell unless they were in some way participating with these business guilds, if they refused to participate, then that means they would be shut out. Therefore, they could not make an income to support their families, and then ultimately they would have to move away and find some other place to live unless they somehow gave in to these unions or these guild practices. Now, let's see what this group of people do ultimately and are condemned for by the Lord. But let's first look at the biblical truth about the Lord Jesus Christ and his character first so that we always are developing a high view of God. Because in each situation, you're going to find that really the view that the people have of God, sometimes it gets lowered as they begin to practice things that ultimately the Lord does not approve of. And that's why it starts out. Look at verse number 18, chapter 2. The character of Jesus. Notice what it says. And the angel of, uh, of the church in Thyatira write, these are the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now, the church was facing a sober examination by the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this case, the church was toying with sin, and as a result, the clear lines of what pleased God and what didn't please him were completely blurred. So we see, though, the Lord in this this verse very clearly 
It says first he's the son of God. That's a clear indication that it tells us that he is the only begotten son. This is a claim to that emphasizes Christ's divine character. And that this is, of course, this surely is the true, true that the deity, the sovereignty, and the authority of Jesus Christ must always be established in the minds of God's people if sinful practices are to be dealt with in a scriptural manner as God intended. Secondly, it says that he has eyes like a flame of fire. Now, no one can hide from the discerning eyes of the Lord. So this characteristic description denotes his piercing and penetrating and perfect knowledge that is Christ has a thorough insight into all persons and all things. If you look down to verse 23 of chapter 2, it says, And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and hearts. So the Lord goes right to the depth of our soul to examine us. It's not just the fruit sins. It's the, it's the things that are deep within our heart. He knows all that's going on in your heart and my heart all the time. And so we can never forget that because then we won't take sin lightly if we think that way. And that's how the Spirit of God wants us to think. And then it tells us in verse 18 that his feet are like burnished bronze. This is a characteristic attribute that signifies the outgoings of his providence are steady, they're awful, and they're pure, and they're holy. In other words, as he judges with perfect wisdom, so he acts with perfect strength and steadiness, and he's not going to let it go by. He's the judge. So the Lord is about to evaluate their spiritual condition quite accurately. But first, he sees some commendable qualities. Look at verse number 19. Here are some admirable things about you. The Lord kind of uses the sandwich method. You know, he gives you the good about what's going on in your life, and then he tells you the bad, right? And it's usually always the good. There's always the commendable thing. That's, that's the pattern he uses. And notice what it says in verse number 19. The Lord has, has a comprehensive knowledge of, of the people and his church. It says, I know your deeds. The first thing in verse number 19, I know your deeds. He's saying to them, listen, you're busy. You're involved with sacrificial ministry to others. You're doing things. You're building the church. That's a good thing. And then he gives two inner motives, and he says in verse number 19, I know your love. Now, it's quite amazing that this church is even commended for love, especially when you, we, we discover the terrible things that are going on amongst some of the professed members. Nonetheless, this church has a disposition to do good to all men, especially to those who are of the household of faith, and, of course, there is no real religion where there is no love. And there was love in this church. And then he says also, I know your faith, that you are committed to following me and serving me to the right message, at least, to the right doctrine. Love then motivates for service, and faith enables endurance to continue on. 
And then he gives two outer results of that in verse number 19. He says, I know your service. This service was the focus, was focused on the needs of the people. They cared and looked out for one another. And then he says the last thing in verse number 19, I know your perseverance. In other words, the word means to bear up under a heavy load. They were tough people. And their minds were set that no matter what happens, they're not going to quit. And then he says in verse number 19, and that your deeds of late are greater than the first. That means they were advancing in spiritual uh, in spirituality. They were growing in ministry. Love and good works were on the increase in this local church. Now, even with these admirable qualities present, everything was not as it ought to be. And let me remind you that those believers who hear and apply correct biblical doctrine will understand that God is serious about his children living in purity. And they themselves actually will make decisions to manage their sinful impulses. Satan got this church to tolerate a false teacher and her practices. Well, let's, let's examine now what Jesus has against the church in verse number 20. It's very clearly it says, but I have this against you, that you tolerate, you permit, the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. How could this be? Well, the state of the church, because the Lord sees in and penetrates the heart and the thoughts of humanity, he knows exactly what is going on. And so the, the state of the church here is that they were in danger of allowing this false prophetess within the church and then tolerated her to stay there without doing anything about it. So the church was allowing a woman, Jezebel, to teach in the church that immorality was not a serious issue. Now, possibly the reason why that was being taught is because of a doctrine called Gnosticism. Gnosticism, what Gnosticism held was that uh, the flesh and the spirit were separate things. So in other words, what, what, what you did in your spirit was completely different than what you did daily in your flesh. So in other words, someone can commit adultery, and it wouldn't necessarily be wrong because it, it didn't affect the spirit. All right? That's just a basic understanding of it, that most likely that thinking was coming into the church. So the people were not considering what they did in the flesh as sinful. It was just fulfilling your own pleasures, enjoying life. That's how they would, would package it. Now, most likely, John could, the Apostle John could be using Jezebel as an identifier name to just exemplify her wicked character based on an Old Testament passage of Scripture, or 
it could be both, that this was a literal woman with the name Jezebel who was actually doing things, uh, her name, I'm talking about her name, but there was definitely a woman, but Jezebel was an identifier of her wicked character because of the Old Testament Jezebel promoted idolatry and adultery in the nation of Israel. See, Jezebel is used symbolically as a powerfully influential evil that can come in in amongst the people of God. And that's what happened at Thyatira. That Jezebel, Ahab's wife in the Old Testament, was a powerfully evil woman. In fact, uh, her father, Jezebel's father in the Old Testament, was swift to violence and murder, that she was dedicated to the worship of Baal. Of course, that means she was an idolater. And, of course, Jezebel seduced her own husband, Ahab, who was the king, to not only be involved with calf worship, but also Baal worship, which was a clear violation of the first and second commandment Thou shalt, have, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Thou shalt not bow down to them nor serve them. Now, quickly, take your Bible and turn, hold your hand there, to 1 Kings chapter 21, because we get the background of Jezebel and her husband, who was the king. Now, let me just give you what's happening in verse 13 and 19 of chapter 21 of 1 Kings. Naboth... Her, uh, Naboth is, a, is an honorable man. He has a vineyard. Uh, Ahab wanted the vineyard. He offered money for it. Naboth says, no, I can't give that away. It's, it's an inheritance I got from the Lord. And so Jezebel he's, comes in, finds her husband kind of like down and depressed. And she says, what's wrong? And he says, well, I went to Naboth. I want to try to buy his vineyard. He wouldn't sell it, and I need that vineyard. She says, okay, I'll take care of it. So she hires up two worthless men or two people that are going to say against Naboth that he blasphemed the Lord. And so she hires them. There's two witnesses, according to the Old Testament. They says, yes, he did this, Naboth, the innocent man did this. What do they do? What was the the penalty? If you did this thing, you got to be taken out and stoned to death. So that's what she did. She had him stoned to death. And then she comes back to her husband, and she says, Naboth is dead. All right? Go get the vineyard. It's yours. So that's what he does. Look at it, verse number 19. Let me pick it up there. So while we look at verse number 19, what she did is that she not only gave, got people to give false witness on an innocent man, but she got the man killed, that's murder, and then now stealing his property. Verse number 19 of 1 Kings 21, it says, you shall speak to him. Now, this is now Elijah, who was the prophet at the time, is speaking against what happened here. And it says, you shall speak to him, saying, thus says the Lord, you have you murdered and also taken possession? And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, in the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, 
the dogs will lick up your blood, even yours. Verse 20, Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, and he answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do evil and notice in the sight of the Lord. The Lord knew what was going on. And then in the Verse 21 says, Behold, I will bring evil upon you and will utterly sweep you away and will cut off from Ahab every male, both bond and free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebath, and like the house of Basha, son of Ahijah, because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger and because you have made Israel to sin. So Jezebel caused her husband to sin even though she orchestrated it at all and he's being blamed for it of course the curse will come upon her too and he's led the whole nation to sin and then notice in verse 23 oh jezebel also has the lord spoken saying the dogs will eat jezebel in the district of jezreel the one belonged to ahab who who dies in the city the dogs will eat And the one who dies in the field, the birds of heaven will eat. And verse 25, surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. Right, So she had a great influence over him to sin these tremendous great sins. And in a way where she didn't care if the Lord saw what the Lord saw. And then the Lord sent Elijah to take care of the matter. And God spoke through Elijah. And then if you notice in verse 26, it says, he acted very abominably in following idols according to all that the Amorites had done whom the Lord cast out before the sons of Israel. It came about when Ahab heard these words. Now, what do you think Ahab did when he heard these words? Look what he did. He tore his clothes He put on sackcloth and fasted and laid in sackcloth and went about despondently. You know what that is? That's repentance. Well, how how does God respond to that? Wicked Ahad. Look what it says in verse number 28. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, the Tishbite, saying, Did you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? So obviously that means that his repentance was genuine. And then notice verse 29. Or It says, do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the evil in his days, but I will bring the evil upon the house of the sons, of his son, in the son's days, in other words. All right, so God says, okay, you repented. I'm responding to your repentance. And that's when God responds, when we repent. He's going to withhold judgment from him until, and the judgment's going to come upon his sons, but he doesn't withhold judgment from Jezebel. Jezebel gets the judgment. Now, in this passage of Scripture, you see in two passages it says that you have done evil in the Lord's sight. You have done evil in the Lord's sight. See, in other words, God sees God sees sin as a violation of his holiness, and if not repented of, must be judged and removed. 
Now, if, if you are thinking, this is too harsh. If anyone thinks that, they are displaying a very low view of God. By thinking about God like that, that God was too harsh in this situation. And if anyone ever thinks God is cruel or uncaring or tricky or aloof or weak or unfair or okay with my sin, that God is only tolerating his children, that somehow God is needy, or that he's a bit of a pushover, or that he is no longer in control, or he can be taken by surprise. If anybody thinks like that, you have mistaken ideas of God, which you must repent of. Because what happens when we think of God like that, we have actually made an idol in our own heart, and we are worshiping a God other than the God of the Bible. So he repented of his evil, and God forgave him. So likewise, the spiritual enemy of Thyatira lured God's servants in the same way as the Old Testament idolaters, the Balaamites, and the Nicolaitans led them into fornication and to eating meads offered to idols because they also brought in false spiritualism. Jezebel's false teaching led her victims into the darkest of fleshly sins as though things done in the flesh were outside the true man and therefore had no consequences. A lot of people think that way today. So here's the breakdown of this church's sins. They were tolerating a habitually sinful person. That you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. In other words, she is a self-proclaimed teacher. No one ordained her. No one supported her. She made herself a prophet. That's the first sign that you better watch out. Also, they were tolerating her crooked doctrine. It says, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray. She was leading faithful Christians astray from God. So she must have been a very skilled teacher. A teacher that was able to communicate what they taught even in a better way than maybe the teachers were teaching in the church. And as a result of that, what happens in verse number 20 is that they were tolerating her sinful practices. It wasn't just her teaching. It's where her teaching led to. Remember, last week, healthy teaching will lead to holy living and a godly life. False teaching or 
a false understanding of the word of God will lead you to a sinful life. Somehow, you make a distinction between what you are inside and what you do outside. And usually what you are inside, you can't examine correctly anyway because you're deluding yourself by false teaching. So Satan can, within a whole new group of Christians, in a different geographical place, under entirely different circumstances, lead people into the same kinds of sins that were they were led into in, in the other churches. So this is sins of immorality, which leads to idolatry, which leads to greed. That idolatry and loose living under this prophetess would defile the church at Thyatira unless they took care of her. Unless they did something, the whole church would be gone. See, the farther a nation moves away from God and his truth, the more sexually perverted and deviant and insane and lawless it becomes. Now, saying all that, even when people do this, it doesn't mean they're not religious. People are still religious. They're religious then, they're religious now. See, the ruin of sin has, has not left humanity irreligious. In fact, people are very religious and spiritual. Everywhere you look, you see bumper stickers. You see T-shirts. You see talk shows, some talk shows, which give evidence that we are people created in, for a relationship with God. Sin has not really removed our spirituality. It has simply warped it. So this is very dangerous for us because it is easy to think that if we are religious, we then must know God. And that is simply not true. That's a lie. This lie has been really the destruction of many people who because they just went to church, because they had a certain level of morality and ethics, that's, that's going to rescue them from the God who sees all things and penetrates the thoughts and hearts of people and knows everything, exactly what's going on. That somehow they can delude God and fake him out because they're doing these religious things. See, when people live by their own desires instead of God's word, it is evidence that they do not know God. It was the Lord God who said through the prophet Jeremiah that when people move away from the word of God, then they live according to their own desires. This is what it said in Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 13. The Lord said, because they have forsaken my law, which I set before them, and have not obeyed my voice, nor walked according to it, but have walked after the stubbornness of their own heart, 
and after Baals or into idolatry as their fathers taught them. So God does not accommodate himself to our lifestyle, but demands that we conform to his ways. But in reality, the point is, this should not be the case for real, born-again, blood-bought, spirit-indwelled believers. And why is that? Because they know God. They are kingdom children, and therefore their standard for living is not their own, but their standard for living is God. Reverend Henry Skugel, in his very good treatise on true religion titled The Life of God and the Soul of Man, wrote something worth quoting. He said this, It is the highest folly to regulate our actions by any other standard than then by which they must be judged. If ever we would cleanse our way, it must be by taking heed, therefore, according to the word of God. Because the word of God will be the standard. The law of God will be the standard in which God judges. So to summarize with a passage of scripture from Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, the spirit-filled, empowered person rules his body and is not caught in the grip of uncontrolled sexual desires, where it says, therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. No one can be involved with this kind of lifestyle without sinning against God, without cheating our fellow human beings and our brothers and sisters in Christ. See, ignorance of God demonstrates itself in idolatry and not necessarily the ugly, obvious idolatry of statues and shrines, but subtle idolatry of refashioning the true God into an image that fits our own lives. In other words, we may profess to know God of the Bible, but in fact we know only a God of our own imaginations, and therefore that God can let me live any way I like. That is not the God of Scripture. The God of Scripture will not let us live any way we like, and if we think that way, then we will be in danger of his judgment. So religious peoples, their thinking is often rooted in a wrong view of God. When they form in their minds such a God as suits their own desires and passions and think God to be such a one as favors and agrees with them, when in fact they do not know God at all and are far from loving such a God as reigns in heaven and does whatever he pleases. So people may have the right Bible, they may have the right words, but are in reality living under the influence of a God they have invented. 
They fashion a God that thinks and looks like them. A God who is just fine with their lifestyle and their choices. And in their deception, they worship a man-made God in their own hearts. Many, many religious people mistaken ideas of God that they have formulated outside of what the scriptures say about God. If you do that, you will be an idolater. Now, why? The psalmist wrote, These things you have done, and I kept silent. You thought that I was just like you. I will prove you and state the case in order before your eyes. You'll find out that I'm not just like you. So what does the Lord, what counsel does the Lord give to the church who is now confronted with this idolatry and this immorality that now has been, it is being practiced among some of the faithful people in the church? All right, why is that? Because remember, in the beginning, they may lose their jobs. They may lose what they're used to. So they kind of tolerated it for their own sakes, but not realizing, wait a minute, I'm not looking at it like God looks at it. If we let this cancer go on, it will eat everything up and it will cause destruction way more than just losing my job or losing a place in my community. They needed to get back to a right and correct view of God. So look at the counsel that Jesus gives in verse 21 and 20 to 23. He says, I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. So God, remember, God is long-suffering with us. Thank the Lord he is. And he gives sinners time to repent of their sin, to get right, to correct things to bring their sin to God and confess it. See, repentance is when you say, I'm done going my way. And I'm turning around going God's way. That's a simple understanding of it. But here it says, this lady Jezebel, she is not repenting. And anyone who follows her, we're going to find out that they are not necessarily repenting either. Scripture gives about six reasons why Christians should manage sexual temptation and abstain from committing this sin. The first reason to avoid such sexual misconduct really appeals to the fear consequence of disobedience. You and I are actually warned today not to take lightly society's lackadaisical attitude concerning sexual conduct and morality. Remember this, a just God and a coming day of judgment are factors that cannot be left out of consideration when dealing with moral practices. Tolerating sin, compromising with sin in the church actually distorts the character of God. It convolutes his nature and it causes people to forget that God will judge with penetrating accuracy. Jesus will judge with righteous indignation. Notice in verse 22 what it says. 
It says, behold, three I wills, I wills in this passage. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. Verse 23, and I will kill her children with pestilence and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one according to your deeds. So in other words, if you notice there that it's because the churches need to know that Jesus Christ is the one who searches the minds and hearts because the church got away from that and the church was led into sin by this false teacher and then her practices came in to the church causing destruction. So his righteous judgment brings back into view an accurate understanding of who the incarnate God has revealed himself to be. That is, Christ is the one who searches the minds and the hearts. That God's physical laws and and moral laws bring consequences if violated. See, God, God has ordained that in his creation that his creation be governed by a vast number of natural and physical laws. If one fights against them, trouble is sure to come. A wise person, though, wants to cooperate with God's physical laws and consider the natural consequences. A wise person also cooperates with God's moral laws. Before taking any moral law, moral action, they consider the consequences of that action. If it doesn't please God, the action is avoided. So the consequences of sexual immorality are many. Sexual immorality produces guilt. It produces shame, loss. uh, It has a psychological element to it. It has an emotional uh, problem element to it. It has a relational element to it that destroys relationships. It has a soul damage element. Element to it. So sexual immorality can never produce sustained happiness because it is in direct conflict with God's unchanging moral law. No one can laugh off God's moral law because God is holy, He is just, and He is not powerless or ineffective. His laws are exacting and unchanging, and they do bring consequences. Now, perhaps you're thinking, But I know some guys and and some girls who have done plenty of wrong things and they seem to be doing okay. They're living together. They're having fun. You know, they're, they're doing the religious thing too. They may even be going to church on a regular basis. But it may appear that that way right now. But remember, a time element is always involved between the season of sowing and the season of reaping. Does a farmer sow his seed in the morning and reap his crop in the afternoon? No. Neither does a guy or a gal who sows sin. Do they always reap sin's harvest immediately? No. See, willful sinners are clever at hiding what is going on inside of them. And they may even 
be hiding feelings of gnawing guilt because of what they're doing or fear or really even a, a loss of even tormenting memories and regrets, and yet they still go on and do it because it gives them pleasure, short-lived pleasure, of course. But the worst of all is to act the fool and to position yourself against God. Again, mistaken thoughts of God. Now, there are other things in Scripture that help us to deal with this whole thing about repenting. Like, how would it actually look if somebody repented of immorality? How would that look at face value? Well, it would look, first of all, that, number one, that they would definitely fear the consequences of disobedience because now they're thinking about it as how God is the judge and I need to be changing things, right? A second thing, if we go to Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse number 3, you get several other reasons why a person or a Christian may, have, may need to manage their sexual temptation. And verse number Three of First Thessalonians four says this: For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, you abstain from sexual immorality. What is it? It's God's will. A third thing in verse four and five of First Thessalonians chapter four, it tells us that each of you know how to possess your own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. A second, a third reason is the Holy Spirit has given you the ability to be in control of your body and its passions. So why should you restrain yourself and give member your members over to the power of the uh, give your members over to the power of the Holy Spirit for righteous living? Well, for this reason, because you love the Lord and you want to please him. That's the primary reason we abstain from sexual immorality. The next Reason is to keep yourself pure for your marriage partner. In verse 5 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it is because the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is their own personal Lord and Savior and because they know God, it says. Christians sense conversion have an intimate, a growing intimate relationship with God the Father through the atoning death of Jesus Christ, Christ and are presently indwelt with the Spirit of God. So God, that means, is working purity, and we are working out purity in our thought life and in our daily relationships and our activities. So it is God's will that every Christian is to know how to act in the matter of sex so as to please God. There's a fourth reason in verse 6, sexual morality and lust defraud other people. In other words, that you cannot involve, be involved with this sin without defrauding other people. Verse 7, God, and the fifth reason is that God called you to holiness, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. 
And then there's one last one in First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 8, and I want you to see this one. That sexual impurity without repentance rejects God. Notice in verse number 8 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, consequently, he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives the Holy Spirit to you. So anyone who treats sexual sin as no big deal is actually treating God and his word as of no account. So whoever despises the teaching about holiness is not just despising some human rule, but God himself. Those who justified loose living do not hesitate to set God aside and sin against the God who is present at the moment and to go on to live in impurity is a direct insult to the divine giver and a sin against the Holy Spirit who is the power unto holiness. So what is Jesus' challenge to them back in Revelation chapter 2, verse 24? His challenge to them is this, to the faithful ones, to the ones who haven't given in to this sin, to the ones who recognize it is wrong. What does he tell them? He gives, he gives them a command, and then he gives them two promises. And here's the command in verse number 24. He says, but I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you, Verse 25, nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep holding on to what you know. Keep worshiping the Lord. Keep having the right view of God and the right view of sin and the right view of self. Keep holding on to that because I'm coming and I'm with you until I come. And then he gives them two promises. Notice the promises. He says, he who overcomes... And he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. As the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, also I have received authority from my father. So you know what he's saying here? That you people who are overcomers, you haven't given into this teaching, you haven't given into this sin, that you have been faithful to hold on to what is true and to who I am and what pleases me. Because of that, I'm going to promise you something. That when it all ends and we're in the kingdom, matter of fact, before we even get to the kingdom, I'm going to make you, I'm going to give you authority over the nations. I am going to allow you to rule them with a rod of iron. What is he saying to them? He's actually saying to the overcomers of this city that God promises privileges to them similar to those he exercises himself. In other words, he is saying to them, listen, what I do, you're going to do. And what are you going to do? Well, Revelation chapter 19 and verse number 15, listen to what it says. It says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, 
and so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. See, this passage and the one in chapter 2 really is setting the context of Jesus' final conquest and victory over all his enemies, and Scripture really leaves us with the sense that there's really no actual fight, but now the reason for that omission in this passage would be to exalt the sovereignty of God and putting the emphasis on Jesus Christ being alone the final authority of life and death. The emphasis then of the imagery before us is God's power and sovereignty. However, in the passage that we read in chapter 2, the Lord is actually saying to them, Listen, I promise you overcomers, I promise you saints that you're going to participate in the destruction of evil forces and rule over the nations with me. I never saw that before. We're going to fight with the Lord and then we're going to rule over the nations. We're going to Fight with him, and then we're going to shepherd the nations with the Lord. So that's the promise that he gives to those who are faithful, who are overcomers, who put one foot in front of the other, breathing out, and do the next thing to please God. And that's really what life's about, isn't it? All the present tense verbs in Scripture, you know what the present tense verbs are about? They're all over the place in the epistles. You know why? Because can't do anything about the past. I can learn from it, right? Can't go back. Can't be in the future, but I can plan for the future. I live today. I live in the present. So do what's right today. Honor God today. Put him first today. Repent of your sins today. Don't put it off. Trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior if you haven't done that today. Why? You're not guaranteed tomorrow. And then the Lord says, those who are faithful, even during the most difficult times in history and in your life, you be faithful, and I will be faithful to you. I will keep my promises. And it's amazing. The promise is not only what I just mentioned, but also the promise is that I will give you the morning star. Who's the morning star? Well, it says in Revelation 22, 16, it says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright and the morning star. So is it saying in Scripture that Christ gives himself to us in the new kingdom and in this the new heaven and earth when we get there, saying that because you were all for me, I will be all for you. That is the blessing that God gives us, and that is the hope that we have as Christians, and that hope should translate into our life as making sure that we're dealing with sin and making sure that what we're listening to is the truth that comes from the Word of God and not false teaching because there's a lot of false teaching out there. It's all over the Internet. It is everywhere in books, 
You go into bookstores today, Christian bookstores, you're probably going to be confronted right in the first row with about three or four false teachers. But they're not called false teachers by a lot of people, but they are because they don't follow the word of God. The remaining believers who did not fall under her spell of apostasy were bright lights of faithfulness and doctrine that would continue, meaning this, that the lampstand the church would still hold up the light of the gospel and people would still get saved because that was their job. That's always their job. And so the Lord evaluates the church so that keeps happening. But that's the responsibility of everybody in the church. We can't tolerate sin. In our own lives and in our neighbor's life, we can't. We have to address it. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Lord, may we continue to believe the word of God. May we continue to grow in truth so we can detect error. Lord, may we come under the piercing examination of your word that it can, when it convicts us, we would run to you in repentance. Even, Lord, like King Ahad did, I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would be sensitive to your spirit. And, Lord, we would not allow things to go on too long before we address them. Lord, enable us today as your people to be faithful to the end, to hold on to these promises that you give us. Because we know, Lord, that we're, you're not done yet in your plan. And we're somewhere at the end of it, and you're coming again, and there will be a millennial time on this earth. There will be a new heaven and new earth where righteousness dwells where the curse is gone, and where all the promises of God are fulfilled. Lord, we look forward to that day. Keep us faithful and looking to you until that day. And I pray in Christ's name, amen. Okay, this morning we have our Lord's table, so let's take a few minutes, examine ourselves, make ourselves ready for the Lord's table. Remember, it is self-examination, coming faithfully to God and realizing that um, we need to think of his death, and his resurrection. So if there's any internal sin that you need to confess to him, please do that. We should do that prior to today. Uh, And then, of course, periods of examination and confession are healthy for us uh, to make things right in our life before God and others. And then, of course, the ordinance also brings to our mind uh, faith in Christ who died for our sin Uh, that we may participate in that. It brings to our minds vividly his sufferings. He died in our place as a substitute. He took our load of sin. He satisfied the justice of God uh, for us. He turned away God's wrath and made us friends for all those who believe in him. And so we should rejoice in that. And then, of course, it brings uh, to our mind the thought that uh, he's coming again. And we need to be faithful to be Uh, looking towards his coming and that as we look towards his coming it causes us to cleanse ourselves and to purify ourselves because someday we'll be with him face to face so let's take a few minutes and prepare our hearts for receiving the elements of the lord's table
Thank you. Word of God says, while they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Let's pray for the bread that represents the body of Christ. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you sent your son into this world, born of a virgin, lived a holy and a perfect life, for the very purpose, Lord, that he would be a man like no other man. He would be a man that was going to be the sacrifice for sin, who fulfilled all the Old Testament requirements of being perfect and unblemished and holy unto God. And thank you, Lord Jesus, you obeyed the Father and went to the cross and there gave your body as a sacrifice for sinners like us, so, Lord, we come and remember what you've done this morning by partaking of the bread and taking it to ourself because, Lord, we do believe in you. We do want to worship you. We do want, Lord, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ to ever be effective in our life. And thank you, Lord, your cross is still as powerful today as ever. Because we can come and confess our sin, and the blood of Christ will wash us from it. Thank you. That it's all done. Let us be faithful to partake of these things, that you may be a God who 
is near to us for blessing. And I pray in Christ's name. Amen. God says, and when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray for the cup that represents the blood of Christ. Father, again, we are appreciative that we're able to partake, partake of this ordinance with some level of understanding from the word of God, that, Lord, this fruit of the vine represents what Christ did in his death and shedding his blood. Because, Lord, if it wasn't, we know if it wasn't for his death and the shedding of his blood, that we sin could never be washed away. But because of what you've done, it's washed away. Never again. Could it be brought up against us because of what Christ has done? Thank you, Lord, for that, that you put your righteousness on our account. And we thank you that the Father no longer sees our sin in Christ, but he sees Christ's righteousness. So thank you, Lord, that we could have never become a Christian by our goodness. We had none. 
by our righteousness, we had none of that either, that could equal your righteousness. And so, Lord, we thank you that we're saved by your righteousness. And so we want to give you worship and praise. And as we partake of this element, I pray these truths we would not forget. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Take a drink, all of it. The Word of God tells us, but I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And that's something to sing about. So they sang a hymn. So let's stand together and sing this song.
and, and uh, just a reminder, if you're in the choir, we're going to just meet really fast after service, about five minutes after the service, just kind of pop in. Um, otherwise, let's close in prayer as we prepare to enjoy family fellowship. Father, we're so grateful to have to have Jesus Christ, the morning star, and the promises that you've given us in your scriptures. And pray, we pray, Lord, that as we look upon these days in which immorality seems to be becoming the norm, and we see churches around us falling one by one into this, and Lord, we pray that we would be able to hold fast to what you've taught us in the scriptures, to resist the trends of the culture, even if it comes in uh, through people in the church. We pray, Lord, that uh, we would be able to discern right from wrong, discern what pleases you and what does not. Help us, Lord, to be a church that exemplifies the holiness that you've called us to, um, how difficult it is to do that. But, Lord, you've given us the strength. And you've given us your Holy Spirit. We're able to do it. We pray, Lord, that you would um, help us to come together as a body um, to rebuke, encourage, and exhort, to, uh, to support one another, to build one another up so that we're able to, to do the things you've called us to, even though they are countercultural, they, they are difficult. Pray, Lord, that you would bless our fellowship meal now. Help us to um, get to know one another even more and, and to, um, um, to enjoy the, the great food that you've blessed us with. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.